Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. In today's episode of the podcast, we're looking back to the 1800s and talking about Mexico's fascinating fight to topple an aspiring emperor and consolidate a fledgling democracy. In 1864, an ambitious and somewhat delusional 31-year-old Austrian Archduke named Maximilian von Habsburg set sail for Mexico with plans to invade and install himself as an enlightened despot, a modernizing and benevolent emperor. Just three years later, he would be executed by his rival, Benito Juarez, a figure who is remembered today as an icon of Mexico's modern political development. In hindsight, it seems like a clear and almost inevitable case of locally grown democracy winning out over foreign invaders and a dictatorship. But when Maximilian arrived in Mexico, there was still serious questions within Mexico and throughout Europe about whether the ideal form of government was a liberal democracy or some sort of benevolent but authoritarian regime. France's early experiment with democracy had failed, and Maximilian's French allies were directed by an emperor, Napoleon III. The United States, still less than a century old, was riven by a destructive civil war. Italy and Germany were still collections of disparate political entities. Of the other major powers in Europe, Britain was still consolidating a constitutional democracy, but Prussia and Austria were controlled by authoritarian governments. The world didn't yet have clear evidence on whether democracies or dictatorships were more effective. The mid-1800s were also a time of rapid technological change that was revolutionizing industry and warfare. In the 1860s, people were learning how to use motorized sewing machines and rapid-fire automatic guns. Overall, the 1860s were a decade marked by conflict, but also one of optimism about the capacity for technology and management to transform society and improve quality of life. At the time of Maximilian's arrival, Mexico was still only a few decades removed from independence from Spain. It was a young democracy with a relatively weak government. It suffered from widespread rural poverty, had limited state capacity, weak institutions, and a powerful but narrow group of landowners and industrialists who led Mexico's agricultural and manufacturing sectors. Within Mexico, certain political factions supported a continuation of colonial-era power structures, while other groups advocated for the creation of a modern liberal democracy. Today, Maximilian might be particularly relevant for Mexico watchers to pay attention to. We know that throughout Latin America, trust in democracy is declining, and authoritarian leaders are consolidating power in a number of countries in the region. In Mexico, 
President Lopez Obrador often talks about the history of Benito Juarez and Maximilian, but at the same time, he seems to embrace some authoritarian ideas and rejects democratic checks and balances. So, there's an open question about whether Mexico will continue to consolidate as a democracy or whether it will take a step backwards towards a more authoritarian form of government. In today's episode of the Modern Mexico podcast, we're speaking to historian Edward Shawcross about his engaging new book, The Last Emperor of Mexico. Welcome to the podcast, Edward. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. So, for readers who pick up your book today, it, it might seem hard to believe that Maximilian could fail to realize that invading Mexico in the 1860s was not going to end well. Um, so I wanted to ask, why did he think it was a good idea? A brilliant question, um, particularly as if, if listeners know the outcome. Uh, it was certainly far from a good idea. But you've got to understand Maximilian, um, his personality and the context he's coming from. And it's a classic example um, in royal families of the frustrated younger um, brother, in this case, younger brother to Franz Joseph, who is the emperor of Austria, um, the Habsburg Empire, one of the oldest, most illustrious empires in the world. Maximilian, um, by, by an accident of birth, he thinks, you know, should be at the same height as his brother, but he's not. Fitting into that, that narrative trope about um, younger roles as well, not only is he hugely ambitious, believes in his own destiny, he's much more outgoing, gregarious, and crucially liberal than his brother. So he sees his brother reigning, thinks, I would do a better job, but he doesn't really have any avenues in Austria, uh, within the Austrian Empire, to pursue what he thinks are his undoubted talent because his brother is very suspicious of him wants to keep him far from power so when this offer of a throne over the Atlantic in Mexico comes in he leaps at the opportunity because it, it in many ways fulfills what he thinks his destiny is okay interesting and um, you mentioned that he's 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 liberal and so I'm wondering you know how did that play out in terms of his ambition in, in Mexico. Right. Well, so this this is one of the great ironies and the great problems that, that he faces. So we should cut back to what's going on in Mexico to explain you know why this offer comes in the first place. So 19th century Mexico um, becomes independent in 1821, um, but it's, a, it's a not a happy existence as an independent nation state. Um, the violence becomes much more important than the ballot box. There are numerous regimes, different constitutions, revolts, counter-revolts, so on and so forth. And by the 1850s, you have a very polarized um, society, which has been humiliated and traumatized by the U.S.-Mexican War, disastrous defeat, half the national territory of Mexico um, sold and literally at gunpoint to the United States of America. Instead of rallying um, behind the nation and trying to rebuild there are two distinct groups which coalesce around liberals and conservatives. These are the names of the parties. On the one hand, the liberals are arguing the reason why Mexico has been humiliated, as it has been at the hands of the United States of America, is because it's not liberal enough, it's not modern enough. What these guys want to do is they want to break the power of the Catholic Church, which not only has huge spiritual hold on the population of Mexico, but is also the largest landowner, owns a huge amount of property. Um, 
And what they do in 1857 is they propose a new constitution that is going to enshrine lots of the reforms that they've introduced. And they, one of the key ones is the, is the um, privatization of church property, which had been held in perpetuity. Now, on the other side are conservatives helpfully named because, um, of course, they don't agree that the reason why Mexico lost the U.S.-Mexican war and its society is divided is, is that it's not modern enough, it's that it's too modern, it's too liberal. And so this is a, becomes a war of words in the 1850s and becomes a civil war in the late 1850s, um, which liberals win. And of course, the heroic leader uh, is Benito Juarez, who um, enters Mexico City in triumph in 1861, having defeated his conservative opponents in this civil war. Now, really, that's where the story of the conservatives should end. There's just a few scattered groups in Mexico itself, um, in you know, hiding out in the sort of remoter regions. But there are many, many conservatives exiled in Europe who have been whispering into the um, to the courts of various European monarchies that the way to solve Mexico as a failed state and, of course, push their own conservative agenda would be to create a monarchy. So. The irony that we have there is that the Mexican conservatives who are exiled and pushing this idea of what essentially is regime change in Mexico are reactionary. They are um, extremely Catholic. They see the Pope as having you know, a role in, in, in politics. Whereas Maximilian, as we mentioned, he's ambitious. He's looking for a throne, but he sees himself as a, as a liberal, what we would today, I guess, call progressive monarch. So there's going to be a, a clash between the, the constituency of, of Maximilian's supporters in Mexico, the conservatives, and Maximilian's own ideas for how Mexico should be governed. Okay, very interesting. And um, overall, I'm wondering if you had to pick uh, three adjectives to describe Maximilian as a leader, what would you pick? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I could have one, um, it would be contradictory because he's got an extraordinarily complex character, um, which is hard to sum up. But if I have to go for three, I'm going to go with indecisive, naive, but also charismatic. Okay. And another question I wanted to ask you is, is obviously he, he confronted a very complicated political situation in, in Mexico, but I'm wondering if you had to pick one reason for why he failed to achieve his goals, what would that be? Right. Well, um, it's, it's, it's the simplest reason is Benito Juarez, um, right? So this is the constitutional president of Mexico. So one of the many reasons why it's a terrible idea um, to create a monarchy in Mexico is because there is a democratically elected constitutional government led by Benito Juarez um, and the liberals who, um, it, who defeated the conservatives in civil war. Now, the reason why... Um, there is regime change in the first place, why monarchy is able to be created is because these conservatives not only have the ear of Maximilian, but much more importantly, they have um, the ear of one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. And this is Napoleon III, who is emperor of the French, nephew of the more famous um, Napoleon Bonaparte, comes to power in France in 1848, first as president, then um, because he's unable to stand for re-election, launches a coup d'etat against his own government and becomes emperor of the French. It's his army, uh, and by the you know the early 1860s, about 30,000 French troops in Mexico carving out this empire for Maximilian alongside the conservative allies that we already mentioned. Now, in the 1860s, the French army is widely considered to be the best in the world. It's defeated Russia in the Crimean War. It's defeated Austria in 1859 in another European war. And so the invasion of Mexico should be in a, a, a walk in the park um, in, in how the French see it. 
this is far far from the case. So they expect Benito Juarez to suit, you know, to, to, to essentially surrender, sue for peace, agree terms. He doesn't. He resists. Uh, and this is the, the famous uh, Battle of Puebla, 1862, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, which is... Uh, which is actually, you know, in some respects, more famous outside of Mexico than it, than it is in Mexico these days, although very few people know what they're celebrating. But this is the extraordinary victory of the Mexican army over the French army, something that any outside observer um, would, have, would have thought um, an extremely outlandish outcome. Now, the French send reinforcements, they push the, the forces of Benito Juarez and, and the Republic back, and eventually Benito Juarez has to abandon Mexico City. And so you even have extremely close uh, advisors, politicians, ministers of Benito Juarez who say, by this point, well, you know, we've, we've defeated the French army once, but we're not going to defeat them again, certainly not in open warfare. The wealth, the resources, um, the, the training, the equipment that the French can bring to bear in Mexico means that we have to set, come to some kind of arrangement and sue for peace. And many of his ministers actually write to Benito Juarez in 1864, when at the height of the French occupation, and argued that case that essentially he needs to come to, to terms with the French, allow Maximilian to rule Mexico undisputed as emperor. And Benito Juarez refuses despite the fact that by this point his forces are just a, you know a few hand, a few a few thousand men scattered across mexico poorly trained badly armed um and running out of money and quite frankly you know um any uh, i don't want to say the word sensible is perhaps not the right word but any kind of ob- objective person looking at the at the situation of bonito Juarez in 1864-65 um probably surrenders he doesn't he continues to resistance, and he continues it long enough for the tide to turn in the favour of the Republicans. And there are outside reasons for that, um, which is partially the way in which the French have on, undergone this conquest. It's what we might call anachronistically a leverage buyout. Essentially, the French government has raised enormous loans, which then the governor Maximilian is going to pay back to the French. Um, so the Mexicans are paying for the privilege of being occupied by the brutal um, colonial um, uh, colonial tactics of the French army. Uh, and that is unsustainable because Mexico, is, as we discussed earlier, economically is, is, is not prosperous enough to support the enormous um, financial burdens that France places upon Maximilian's government. And of course, he doesn't control the entire of Mexican territory either, even at the height of the empire. And then the final um, reason, I know you asked for one, so I apologize, but I've given you the most important and two additional ones. The second one is, is actually the role of the United States of America, which of course is in its own civil war during the 1860s and therefore is unable to offer support to Benito Juarez and the liberals, who Abraham Lincoln and, and Washington um, in this period was actually um, very close to. Um, once the U.S. Civil War ends, then uh, credit and, um, uh, and and weapons are able to flow across the, the U.S.-Mexican border um, in this sense, in, in a positive way, into the hands of the Juaristas. And that is, enables them um, to, to resupply, regroup and begin to push back the forces of Maximilian. So that was a long answer. The short answer would have been Benito Juarez. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that Mexico is known for producing some of the best coffee in Latin America. Total, in 2021, Mexico exported $350 million of raw coffee beans. One of the best local roasters in Mexico City is Nomade Tostadores. Residents and visitors can sample their high-end coffee at Café Blom in Colonia Juarez or Bara Funky in Colonia del Valle. 
Nomadi Coffee can also be purchased online and shipped worldwide. Check them out on Instagram. I just wanted to, to loop back to, to what you said. I know that you described Maximilian as indecisive and naive. And I'm wondering how those two, how those two adjectives kind of played a role in what happened to him. And if you can explain, you know, what was his end in, in Mexico? Right. Yeah. So I'll just run through those and give you some examples. I think that's the best way to illustrate them. Indecisive. He would never make a decision, Maximilian, if it could be postponed. Uh, he was it a tortuous process for him to come to, um, to anything um, even re- remotely resembling a, a, an actual decision. Um, there, there's so many examples of this. Uh, but the actual offer of the crown itself, the offer comes in, dis, um, in, sorry, in October 1861. Maximilian does not go to Mexico until May 1864, nearly three years after the offer comes in. Now, partially this is because of the difficulty that the French are having in, in, in um, subjugating the forces of Benito Juarez, but it's also because Maximilian vacillates backwards and forwards. Should I accept the crown? He places conditions, some of which can't be met. He changes those conditions. Uh, and it's, you know, nearly three years. When he gets to the country, uh, he, the, the state of the finances is disastrous. And of course, he's got to make those payments to the French if the French army is going to stay in Mexico. But instead of making decisions and reforms, he sets up committees of Mexican politicians that are going to analyze and report back to him. Takes months before any action is taken. And of course, while all of that is happening, his increasingly small resources are dwindling. And then finally, once the tide begins to turn against him, he's not once, but twice decides to abdicate. Once it's clear that French support um, is is no longer going to be forthcoming. That Benito Juarez is 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 you know the popular leader of Mexico and his forces are going to push back the imperialistas. Uh, he decides to abdicate, and the first time um, he's talked out of it um, by his wife, Princess Charlotte Carlotta, someone we should have mentioned. She's um, she's a Belgian princess. She's equally ambitious. She's she's very Catholic as well. She believes that the Catholic Church is being attacked in Mexico under under the, the sort of liberal reforms of the 1850s. Um, and she is decisive rather than indecisive. She gives steel to Maximilian's ambition. But she talks him round into staying. She goes back to Europe to plead for more support. Um, it's, it's a sort of long and tragic story. And she ends up having a, a complete mental breakdown in the Vatican um, before the Pope pleading for more support. She never comes back to Mexico. That's in 1866. So when Maximilian hears that his wife is sick and ill in Europe, he decides again, given that Benito Juarez is on, is, you know, on the rise, I will abdicate. And there is this 40-day period whereby he is debating this with his advisors, with his Mexican allies, and going backwards and forwards, prevaricating, and eventually decides to stay in Mexico um, and the reason he's talked into it is is because his conservative allies say, well, once the French have gone, then the Juaristas will no longer be able to level the charge of um, foreign intervention and um, and you know fighting under the flag of a foreign army. The people of Mexico will rally to you to you. Um, we'll be able to raise millions of, of of dollars, tens of thousands of men. 
these are the promises they make to him. None of them are true. Um, in the end, in the, the, once the French army leaves, there's very little military and financial resources left to Maximilian. And he marches his army out from Mexico City uh, to, to, to sort of, in the hope that a heroic last stand against three Far Easter armies that are converging um, on him. Uh, will result in the sort of the, the empire being revived. You know, this this is, I suppose, the empire strikes back moment um, that his advisors uh, are selling to him. And it's absolutely the opposite um, is the case. He's, the army is placed under siege. He's surrounded. Um, and again, his indecision comes through because there's numerous attempts um, where they might be able to break through the lines, get back to Mexico City, rally what support is left to him. And each time these decisions are postponed, put off, councils of war talk and talk and talk and talk um, and eventually he's captured court-martialed and famously executed okay so it sounds like um he's a somewhat tragic figure in that you know he has these ambitions for for mexico and everything plays out very poorly for him um but it seems like we can look at him as kind of a well-intentioned but blundering figure who loves the spotlight and the pomp of being a national figurehead, but who struggles to enact policy or reform institutions. And I think it's a case where ambition exceeds ability. <laughs> and Absolutely um, right. I think that you know, Maximilian was somebody who saw himself as a liberal, but was willing to embrace conservative allies and authoritarianism in order to realize his vision for Mexico. And uh, you mentioned the word contradictory. And I'm wondering if if some people reading your book might see some parallels to Mexico's current president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. And I'm wondering, was Lopez Obrador on your mind at all while you were writing this book? And do you think he shares some traits in common with Maximilian? <laughs> well, I, a lot of people have commented that the title should possibly be amended to the last emperor for now, uh, or at least just the last emperor refers to the previous one, i.e. Maximilian, and not the current one, um, Lopez Obrador. It's, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, history is written in the present and in some senses it's, uh, you know, it's a dialogue conversation with, 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 with its context. I have to say, I started researching, um, you know, a long time before that presidency seemed like it would be, a, you know, a real possibility, but certainly was writing it, you know, kind of 2018 onwards. So, yeah, he's he's there. Um, and, it, you know, the, the parallels um, are, are fascinating in a lot of ways. Of course, Lopez Obrador, you know, he sees, he would see himself and does situate himself, right, within the Juarista tradition and talking about the forced transformations. You have independence, the great reforms of Benito Juarez, the revolution uh, and something yet to come, sort of slightly ill-defined. But in terms of those the similarities, yeah, I think that you, that's really interesting um, um, one that you make there, this idea that you have someone who is a liberal or, you know, progressive, um, like today what we would call part of, part of the left, uh, but willing to use authoritarian um, and conservative means to do so. That's, you know, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, one thing that um, that Lopez Obrador and uh, Maximilian would have in common, which is which is quite interesting, is anti-Americanism. Um, so that's certainly something that you could you, you could tie them to. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that in, in the 50s, so 50s and 60s, 1850s and 60s, 
the um, the right of Mexican political spectrum is extremely anti-American. They see it, um, you know, as this kind of uh, as a sort of invasive force from the north that will that will subjugate much of Latin America and beyond. Whereas the left, and um, what we would call the left today, you know, the liberals of Benito Juarez, they're not pro-American um, unreservedly, but they do see the United States as some sense of a Republican model to emulate. So that that dichotomy. Um, has kind of shifted. Um, uh, Maximilian's anti-Americanism might be a similarity. But I think the differences are, are actually much more striking, um, not least because uh, Maximilian is extremely generous um, and, and, and polite. Uh, you know, he is a 19th century aristocrat after all. Um, manners and etiquette uh, are important to him, but also rhetoric. So Maximilian, he is a dreamer. Um, he's a man who thinks that the impossible is possible. Unfortunately, not necessarily in a good way, because that's why he attempts things that simply can't be done. But his vision for Mexico is actually, um, uh, and, and it's absolutely clear that it's in, in, on the ground, this never plays out, right? But in his rhetoric, is inclusive. He wants to unite the various parties that have um, been, you know, at each other's throats in Mexican politics in the mid 19th century. It's about the words he uses are reconciliation. One of his favorite sayings is we forget the shadows of the past and the motto of his empire. And again, this never this never comes in, into play. It's equality before the law. He's a great believer in the law, even though he is governing illegally and not just in the sense that he's not recognized as the emperor of Mexico, but he's also ruling by decree. Um, what he wanted to do was um, was unite the various parties in Mexico through a process of reconciliation uh, and ultimately create democratic institutions, a constitution and rule as what he would have seen as a, a sort of a, a modern progressive monarch as you would see perhaps in, in Belgium or, or a better known example in Britain in the mid 19th century. Uh, and that strikes me as a very different vision um, to, to, to La Prezov. You know, the sense that, that Maximilian, uh, it, both after the, the 1850 Civil War and the one that he is in, is even, though the reality is different, the rhetoric is, is much more inclusive. Um, and so I think that when we're think, looking at the parallels, um, there, there, are, there, are, there are some similarities, but I think the difference is perhaps more striking. Okay, interesting. And I think there's there's one other parallel that I see, which is the the use of the word um, conservative. And I think that your book seems to kind of resonate a lot with the current political dynamic in Mexico because of how frequently Lopez Obrador uses the word conservative. If uh, investigative reporters criticize his his policies or the performance of his government, he calls them conservatives. If Feminist activists protest violence against women and femicides. He calls them conservatives uh, disguised as feminists. If environmental activists oppose his train project in the in the rainforest, he calls it uh, a conservative project. Uh, so that word just keeps coming up again and again. Uh, but the context obviously is quite quite different. Um, but there is there's another way that I think that this history is very much alive right now, and that's that Lopez Obrador is obviously a big fan of Benito Juarez, and he lauds him as a as a hero. Um, but at the same time, right now, Lopez Obrador and his followers often seem very skeptical or outright hostile to Ukraine's President Zelensky, and. You pick the word contradictory to describe Maximilian, and I think the same might apply to Lopez Obrador. And 
I think that, you know, given Mexico's history of fighting off foreign invasions, it might seem natural for Lopez Obrador to see a kindred spirit in Zelensky, but that's really not the case. We see Lopez Obrador often adopting a a kind of pro-Russian or pro-Putin stance and being a little bit hostile to Zelensky. And I think that in some ways that might highlight some of Lopez Obrador's underlying authoritarian instincts. So what I wanted to ask about is I think that at the heart of this Maximilian episode in in Mexican history is a, a struggle between an authoritarian vision for government um, and a more democratic vision. And that's the struggle between Maximilian and, and Benito Juarez. Um, so I'm wondering when you look at Mexico today, do you see President Lopez Obrador is falling more on the side of authoritarianism or more on the side of liberal democracy? Wow, tough question. Um, I think I think that it's a really interesting way of framing it. And just to go back to one point you make, that use of that, the word conservative um, by Lopez Obrador is, you know, it goes right back to this period. Because unlike in, in other countries, and certainly in, in the United Kingdom and, and the United States of America, the word conservative takes on a connotation that is almost entirely and universally pejorative, right? Because it's the conservatives who have called a foreign army and a foreign prince to rule over Mexico. And not only that, but of course, they failed in that project. It's, it's been catastrophically defeated um, and their project humiliated. So whereas in the United Kingdom, we have a conservative party and for anyone on the left, conservative is, is, is synonymous with, um, you know, with scum or whatever it might be. But people like themselves identify as conservatives. And of course, in the US, you have the same discourse. You have writers who will call themselves conservative. So that word conservative has a long and loaded history, and it goes right back to this period of the mid-19th century. On that question uh, of, you know, and I guess, you know, it's it's similar to the way he's using it in a way in which people often use the word fascist. There's no real meaning behind behind the word except just to label someone as an enemy who is beyond the pale. And that conservative has much stronger connotations um, in, in Mexico than it does in, in, in some other countries. In, in terms of, 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 you know, where he stands in this kind of authoritarian versus, versus demo, um, democracy struggle, that you're absolutely right, it's um, central mid-19th century and continues um, throughout Mexican history uh, and, and often more on the side of authoritarianism than democracy, sadly. Uh, it, you know, if you're looking at recent events, then you would have to say, that there, there's been backsliding um, and, you know, attacks on the judiciary. This is, the, you know, the rhetoric, which is incredibly polarizing uh, and uh, often anti-democratic, using um, the, you know, the, the kind of almost remilitarization of Mexican society. A lot of this to, to me and, and, you know, you're, you're, you're there on, on, on the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm an outside observer and historian. Um, this, this looks to me like harking back um, much more to some of the worst aspects of the pre uh, and in in terms of how you're m- m- perhaps moving towards a, a managed and a liberal democracy. And um, therefore, and then I suppose the irony is that it, it, the, the, these are accusations that some made to uh, Benito Juarez um, in, in after defeating Maximilian was that he was concentrating too much power into his own hands and was setting up some kind of sort of personalized presidential system, which is, of course, what happens after Benito Juarez with the Porfiriato. Um, 
and and so therefore i suppose it you know it, it it's it, it's 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 tricky it's a difficult question um but for, for from my point of view I, I, it, it seems to be tending towards much more towards populism and authoritarianism than the kind of democracy that was envisaged very positively uh, in the 1850s and 1860s this radical tradition of mexican liberalism um that is on the side of the people is trying to create institutions of um durable institutions of democracy of course they don't manage it and in part that's because of you know the invasion from the United States of America and then the French and Maximilian. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it, once you have in these kind of post-authoritarian um, climates, say post-pre, where you have this opening up of, of democratic institutions, the civil society in America and in, in Mexico, sorry, uh, it seems to be that it's it's being closed down rather than, than open up further. Okay, very interesting. Um, well, overall, I really just want to say, you know, how much I enjoyed reading your book. I think that the research and the historical details are obviously very interesting, but really it's the writing and the storytelling that really set it apart. And I think that it's really one of the most engaging and interesting nonfiction books that I've read about Mexico. So uh, overall, I just want to say, you know, thanks so much for, for joining us on the podcast. Not at all. A real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that Mexico is the world's number one beer exporter. Within Mexico, however, the beer industry is dominated by two international beer giants, the companies that produce Corona and Dos Equis. Over the last decade, however, a niche market for locally produced craft beers has emerged in Mexico, and one of the best brands of cerveza artesanal in Mexico is Minerva, which is produced in Guadalajara. Visitors and locals can sample Minerva's beer at the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores in Mexico City. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard on the podcast today, check out Edward Shawcross's book, The Last Emperor of Mexico, which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.